In 480 BCE, Greece was on the verge of a catastrophe. The Persian king of kings, Xerxes, had assembled a gigantic, unstoppable army, then invaded. City after city in Greece surrendered, but as Sparta came under attack, they sought guidance from the ultimate source of wisdom, the oracle at Delphi. This was her advice. Either a Spartan king must die, or the entire city-state would fall. So their ruler, Leonidas, took a group of 300 bodyguards and marched to Thermopylae. This narrow mountain pass north of Delphi was a major land route into central Greece. If the Spartans and their allies could halt the Persians there, they'd protect most of the nation, including Delphi and its treasures. But if they failed, the Persians would fall on the city-state like hungry wolves. It would take a miracle to save them. While they waited to hear if the Spartans were successful, the Delphians asked the oracle what they could do to save their home from destruction. Her answer? Pray. Welcome to Unexplained Mysteries, a Spotify original from Parcast. I'm your host, Molly. And I'm your host, Richard. In life, there's so much we don't know, but in this show, we don't take we don't know for an answer. Every Tuesday, we investigate the greatest mysteries of history and life on Earth. You can find episodes of Unexplained Mysteries and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. This is our final episode on the ancient Greek seer known as the Oracle at Delphi. For centuries, the Oracle made prophecies while in a divine trance. Last time, we discussed the Oracle's mythological and historical origins and what we know about the temple's so-called Pythia. Supposedly, this priestess communicated with the gods after inhaling sweet-smelling vapor that wafted from a fissure in the earth. Today we'll explore how the Pythia eventually became a key player in the struggle for control of Greece. And we'll get to the bottom of what really caused her mind-altering trance. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with a personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. There's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers. And industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. From the journal, 
trillion dollar shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts. The 6th century BCE saw the oracle at Delphi's meteoric rise in reputation and wealth. Thanks to her supposedly accurate prophecies, she became the seer for ancient Greece. But just as she began making a name for herself, tragedy struck. In 548 BCE, a fire broke out in Delphi. It's unclear how it started. One rumor suggested the ruler of Athens started the blaze, but most likely it was an accident. We also don't know how much damage the fire did to the city, but the magnificent Temple of Apollo was completely consumed. Legend has it the heat was so intense it melted a large statue of a lion made of solid gold. By the time the flames died down, the temple of Greece's most sacred oracle was nothing but a blackened heap. That, of course, couldn't stand. The religious association that managed the oracle, the Amphictyonic League, stepped in. They kick-started a massive restoration program, perhaps the biggest in Greek history at the time. Delphi was a small city, really more of a town. It didn't have enough money to construct a new temple. So they made an international appeal to donors, and the wealthiest figures of the ancient world stepped up. Even the pharaoh of Egypt contributed a hefty amount. But fundraising on a massive scale was a slow process. This, combined with the complicated rebuilding efforts, meant it took over 40 years for the Temple of Apollo to be restored. And once the super-rich started spending money at Delphi, they couldn't stop. Each new monument, each new statue or building had to be topped by a bigger and better structure. If your rival had a fancy shrine at Delphi, naturally you had to build an even gaudier one. While all of this construction was underway, the Pythia continued to churn out prophecies, even before her temple was finished. We don't know where or how she worked. Records suggested she ordinarily could only prophesize in a specific part of the temple. Maybe she stood where her chambers were supposed to be and had to shout over the banging of workmen's hammers. But otherwise, it was business as usual, until it wasn't. At one point in 514 BCE, for unknown reasons, the work came to a halt. But fortunately, the Alcmeonid family, a prominent clan from Athens, stepped in and finished the job. Afterwards, many of the oracle's responses just happened to echo the family's views. It seemed something had changed at Delphi. Just a few years later, a Pythia was likely bribed. The background to the scandal lay in the rivalry between Athens and Sparta and the chaotic politics within Athens. And we'll warn you, it gets complicated. This story makes some Game of Thrones plotlines seem straightforward. In the mid-6th century BCE, Athens was ruled by Pisistratus, whose family was known as the Pisistratids. The Pisistratids had an enemy, the Alcmeonids, aka 
the same family who helped see the reconstruction of Delphi. After a power struggle, Pisistratus exiled the Alcmeonids, who didn't take their defeat lying down. Instead, they allied with Athens' greatest rivals, the Spartans. To recap, you have the Pisistratids ruling over Athens and the Spartans and Alcmeonids teaming up against them. The Spartans had the strongest army in all of Greece. But here's where things get interesting. The Spartans were very superstitious. In fact, they were notorious for not doing anything unless they got the okay from an oracle. So to get their allies to do their bidding, the Alcmeonids likely turned to the Pythia and encouraged or strong-armed the priestess into speaking out against their enemies in Athens. So whenever delegates from Sparta asked the oracle about anything, they always got the same response. Sparta needed to free Athens from the tyranny of the Pisistratids. Everything else could wait. Now, there were other factors at play besides the oracle's pronouncements. But eventually, Sparta went to war. It took four campaigns for them to drive the Pisistratids out of Athens. Afterward, the city-state had a power vacuum. But eventually, the Alcmeonids took power. As in Sparta's former allies, the family who kicked off the whole dispute after they were exiled. It seemed all their conspiring had paid off. They destroyed their enemies, made a powerful ally in the Oracle, and now they were in charge. Out of all this chaos, the Alcmeonids instituted a slew of reforms, creating the world's first democratic system. As a fitting bookend to the story, they then asked the Pythia to essentially give her blessing to the new government, which she did. And so, thanks to the Oracle at Delphi, the first democracy was born. A few years later, Athens wanted to seize a strategically important island which was falling under Persian control. Naturally, this was a job for the Spartan army, except there was a problem. The Spartans were divided. Now, Sparta had a unique system where they always had two kings, but in this case, it caused issues. The Spartan king, Cleomenes, was all for invading the island, but his co-king, Demeritus, was opposed. He sympathized with the Persians. The two rulers were split, so Cleomenes decided to depose his co-regent. And to get the rest of Sparta on board with his coup, he of course needed the Pythia's blessing. The details of the ensuing scandal are sparse, but we know Cleomenes bribed the Pythia, and the Spartans bought her phony prophecy, hook, line, and sinker. Demeritus was kicked off the throne and sent into exile. The bribery was eventually uncovered. We don't know how, but as punishment, Cleomenes was exiled. Later, he took his own life. At least, that's the official story. Rumor has it he may have been murdered by his political enemies. As for the Pythia who gave the false prophecy, she lost her title. The scandal was so extraordinary, ancient historians wrote about her by name. In the entire thousand-year history of the Oracle, 
she was one of just two Pythias whose identity was exposed, all for a political bribe. But greater conflicts were looming. The next clash wouldn't just pit the rulers of Athens or Sparta against each other. It threatened all of Greece. Coming up, the oracle's words guide the Greeks in the ultimate battle. Listeners, in honor of May, being Missing and Unidentified Persons Awareness Month, Parcast is presenting a new collection of captivating stories you do not want to miss. On Disappearances, Sarah Turney examines the disturbing crimes linked to the Highway of Tears and the Bethesda Home for Girls. Plus, she welcomes the founders of the Black and Missing Foundation for a special discussion. Catch these episodes starting May 4th. Then, on Solved Murders, discover three no-body homicide cases rife with cons, conspiracies, and conflicting statements. The Solved Murders special, The Missing Dead, starts May 17th. Follow Disappearances and Solved Murders to hear all of these episodes all month long. Listen free, only on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. In 480 BCE, the Persian king Xerxes was on a crusade to conquer all of the Mediterranean, so he assembled a vast, unstoppable army and invaded Greece. His attack sent the city-states into a panic, so they sought the wisdom of the oracle. Questions flooded the Temple of Apollo, asking whether they should resist the Persians or submit. Most received the same response, try to stay neutral. But when the Spartans asked for guidance, the Pythia's response was clear. Either a Spartan king must fall in battle, or Sparta itself would be destroyed. When Athens asked the same question, the Pythia told them, quote, Miserable men, why are you sitting idle? Leave in flight the furthest dwellings of your land and the high peaks of the wheel-shaped town. The Athenians were distraught. The Pythia had told them to flee for their lives. But a local Delphian suggested they ask again. So for a second time, the Athenians prayed. They told Apollo they wouldn't leave his temple until they received a better prophecy. The Pythia made a second statement, maybe just to get them to leave. She said essentially, Athens had to trust in their, quote, wooden walls. But the city's walls were made of stone, not wood. Clearly the message was supposed to be symbolic, but nobody knew what it really meant. While the Athenians debated the Pythia's words, the superstitious Spartans followed her instruction. The Spartan king Leonidas led a small army to face the Persians. They made a stand in a narrow mountain pass called Thermopylae, or Hot Gates. It was a grim but fitting place for a battle. 
The acrid air stank of the sulfur hot springs that gave the pass its name. The Greeks believed it was one of the entrances to the underworld, a convenient place to die. Leonidas, his 300 bodyguards, and a few thousand allies watched as Xerxes' seemingly endless army surged forward. Victory seemed impossible. A Persian envoy stepped forward and told the Greeks to surrender. His forces had so many archers, their arrows would blot out the sun. Resistance was futile. A Spartan replied back. Then they'd fight in the shade. For days, the Persians hurled themselves at the Greeks, and the Greeks held them back. Arrows pinged uselessly off heavy shields, and the Spartans' long spears kept the invaders' swords at bay. The Greeks wouldn't be moved. It's said when the Spartans had broken their spears and swords, they kept fighting with their fists and teeth. But eventually, Xerxes' superior numbers overwhelmed them. The Greek army was slaughtered, every last soldier. Leonidas was among the fallen, fulfilling the oracle's prophecy that a king of Sparta had to die to save the city-state. Because, while the Spartans may have lost the battle, they won a moral victory. Their stand became a rallying cry that inspired the other city-states, and Athens stepped up to continue the fight. The city's leaders still didn't know how to interpret the Pythia's words about wooden walls. Some took it to mean the Athenians should build a new wooden fortification. But a general interpreted as meaning the Athenians should fight the Persians at sea, within the wooden walls of their ships. And that's what they did. The Greeks defeated the Persians at the naval battle of Salamis. Eventually, they turned the tide of the invasion and defeated Xerxes. The oracle's prophecies had saved the Greek world. The victorious city-states asked the Pythia how they should celebrate. She told them to take fire from the sacred hearth of Delphi and use it to relight the hearths in the other Greek cities. A city's sacred hearth symbolized its survival, its very soul. By using Delphi's fire to relight their own, the Greeks were symbolically connecting themselves to Delphi, the heart of their civilization. At the Temple of Apollo, they also built a monument to commemorate their newfound sense of unity. It was an enormous tripod decorated with three bronze and gold serpents coiling at its legs. On it, they wrote the names of each Greek city that had resisted the Persians. But the unity was short-lived. Athens and Sparta soon resumed their old bickering and came to blows in 431 BCE. The Peloponnesian War, named after the peninsula where Sparta was located, raged off and on for the next 30 years, devastating much of Greece. Surprisingly, Delphi made it through unharmed, but the city's monuments had changed. Previously, when Athens had been a major donor, much of the artwork celebrated that city-state. But now, symbols of Sparta dominated Delphi. And no Spartan was more celebrated than a general named Lysander. 
Lysander was so popular, he wanted to change the constitution so he could be elected king of Sparta. The only problem? The title was inherited, and he wasn't part of the royal family. He tried to bribe the Pythia, but she rejected him. Soon after, his royal plot collapsed. It was dangerous for the Oracle to stand up to powerful generals like Lysander. Even at its height, Delphi was just a small town, meaning it had few people or resources to defend itself. Its position became even more precarious in 373 BCE, when an earthquake devastated the town and left much of the Temple of Apollo in ruins. The destruction was widespread and intense. On the opposite side of the Gulf of Corinth, one Greek city was completely wiped off the map. In comparison, Delphi got off easy. Almost all of their buildings were lost, but the town survived. And though the Oracle may have ceased functioning for a time, it's unclear for how long. Meanwhile, the bickering between Greece's city-states continued. While Delphi was being rebuilt, Sparta and Athens grew weaker, and Thebes became the dominant power in the Greek world. Delphians were divided over whether to support or oppose Thebes, and the conflict quickly escalated. In 363 BCE, 11 prominent Delphians were exiled for opposing the new power. A few years later, tension between the pro-Theban and anti-Theban camps erupted into outright war, and Delphi became a valuable pawn. Soldiers occupied the Temple of Apollo, claiming it belonged to them. Mercenaries melted down the temple's treasures for quick cash. Delphi needed a defender, and they found one in Philip of Macedon. Macedon was a small hamlet on the fringes of the civilized world. Many barely counted them as Greek. But Philip's Macedonian army was a nearly unstoppable fighting machine. After securing his kingdom's borders, Philip marched to the heart of Greece, defeated the occupying forces, and liberated Delphi. In the span of a few short years, Philip became the leader of almost all of Greece. When he was assassinated in 336 BCE, his son became his successor. His name? Alexander the Great. Reportedly, Alexander once visited the Oracle, but when he arrived, he was politely informed she wasn't giving prophecies that day. The impulsive king wouldn't stand for that. He physically dragged the Pythia into the temple, demanding a prophecy. Ancient sources say she was so impressed by his determination, she proclaimed, You are invincible, my son. Satisfied, Alexander bounded off. He went on to conquer an empire stretching from Greece to the region that forms Pakistan today. After Alexander's death, his generals carved up his land, then squabbled amongst themselves. The fighting persisted until the Romans conquered Greece and the rest of the Mediterranean world in the second and first centuries BCE. Roman senators, who usually loved or at least respected all things Greek, continued to consult the Pythia. But it was no longer a center of power. The sway of the oracle was slowly fading. 
In 87 BCE, a great Roman general who'd previously consulted the oracle decided he would instead send a representative to the temple to seize its treasury. But when his representative arrived, the man mysteriously heard music. Music that sounded like Apollo's lyre. He reportedly thought this was a sign that the god disapproved of his actions. The general wrote back with an alternate interpretation. The divine music meant Apollo approved of the theft. He then told his forces to resume plundering the sanctuary. Presumably, his take was right. After he stripped the temple of its treasures, his conquest was a success. In the next few centuries, Roman emperors tended to respect the temple, but the damage to the Pythia's reputation was done. By now, the oracle at Delphi was little more than a bystander to the changing powers around them. We don't know exactly when the oracle stopped for good, but most likely it was sometime around 391 CE the year Emperor Theodosius made Christianity the official religion of the empire. The Pythia faded away with a whimper and Delphi became a ruin. For over a thousand years, the oracle was lost, and so were her secrets. Until today. Coming up, the truth behind the oracle's prophecies. Now back to the story. Around the end of the 4th century CE, the oracle at Delphi gave her last prophecy. But curiosity about her never completely vanished. Modern scholarship on the oracle began in the late 19th century when British and American historians studied the Pythia in earnest. Stories often say that the Pythia's trances were triggered by strange fumes rising up from a crack in the temple floor. Some Greeks believed these gases came from the decaying corpse of the serpent monster Apollo slew, which was buried deep beneath the earth. Others suggested they were from a natural spring deep under the temple. In the late 1800s, these ancient claims were tested by an archaeological expedition. For almost 10 years, a French team excavated Delphi, hoping to uncover a magnificent marble structure. Instead, they found the humble foundations of the Temple of Apollo. There was no fissure in the rock. Instead, it seemed the temple was built over a thick bed of clay. When they tried to dig through it, they found another layer of clay. Under that, another. But no cleft or cave filled with gas. One archaeologist published a book claiming there was no evidence of naturally occurring, mind-altering gases in the temple. He said such emissions would be impossible. Many dismissed ancient descriptions of so-called gaseous emissions as a mistranslation, a myth, or an outright hoax. And this led people to reassess their attitude towards records from the era. If the Greeks of the Oracle's time were wrong about a fissure, they wondered what else was off-base. While the old text may have contained some misinformation, historians were still confident the oracle was real. So the question was, 
If hallucinogenic gases didn't trigger her prophecies, what did? Researchers quickly ruled out the springs near the temple. Everyone in Delphi drank from them, and they didn't go into trances. Likewise, they disqualified certain herbs the Pythia chewed before her ceremonies since they were common cooking ingredients. Then, in the late 1990s, an interdisciplinary team of scientists took a closer look at Delphi's geography. The group included a geologist, a chemist, a toxicologist, and an anthropologist. This collaboration began when the anthropologist, John R. Hale, was on a dig. He wasn't in Delphi, but another Roman site that Hale believed was damaged in an earthquake. But he didn't have enough expertise to say for sure. Luckily, a geologist named Yella de Boer was working nearby on a separate project. De Boer's specialty was earthquakes, and he kindly agreed to review Hale's work. Later, the new colleagues split a bottle of wine and talked about their past expeditions. That's when de Boer mentioned seeing a fault line under Delphi. Now, as an archaeologist, Hale knew that the original French expedition never found any evidence of a fissure or break in the rock below the Oracle's temple. So he argued with de Boer that there wasn't a fault line there. There couldn't be. De Boer then asked, would you know how to recognize a fault? Hale admitted he didn't. It seemed archaeologists had assumed that Delphi wasn't tectonically active, but they'd never bothered to confirm that theory with an expert. It took a chance meeting between an anthropologist and a geologist to debunk that century-old assumption. Which is how Hale, De Boer, and a few other researchers ended up working together to excavate the oracle. They performed chemical analyses on the spring water around and beneath the temple site. They identified several trap gases, including methane and a sweet-smelling compound called ethylene. Too much methane combined with carbon dioxide can cause hypnotic trances, and ethylene was one of the main ingredients in general anesthesia during the mid-20th century. When it's inhaled too quickly, it can leave people feeling bewildered. Ancient descriptions of the Pythia's trances sound similar to the first stage of anesthesia. Both feature a mild euphoria and disembodied high. Plus, the Pythia often forgot her own prophecies. As it happens, short-term memory loss is a side effect of mild anesthesia. On top of all that, the researchers considered the fact that the Pythia only worked nine months out of the year. She took the winter off, presumably because Apollo, associated with the sun, was absent. But maybe it was because during the cold winter months, as the mountains held more snow and ice, the underground spring water was lower. The oracle couldn't work until the snow melted again. And the Temple of Apollo had an earthen floor. Typically, a grand temple would be paved with marble or stone. But perhaps the builders had been careful not to cover the crack in the earth. This would explain why the Pythia could only prophesize from one specific room. 
Maybe her chambers were built on top of the one and only fissure that spewed gases from the fault line to ground level. In fact, Hale argued the structure and location of the temple makes no sense unless you assume the builders wanted the underground emissions to waft into the temple. Otherwise, the land was too unstable to house such an important building. Because naturally, the ground around a fault line is often in motion. That seemed to be the point. The researchers theorized that an earthquake around 730 BCE may have created a crack in the earth that vented intoxicating gases, and then the temple was built around it. In other words, that fissure made the oracle's trances possible. But then another earthquake struck in 373 BCE, the one that ruined much of Delphi. Accounts describe the destruction in great detail. Before the quake, people heard strange sounds like wind, even when the air was still. Something other than the sun lit up the horizon. The seas bubbled and fish died in great numbers. All of these signs suggest toxic gas was venting. It could have poisoned the fish, whooshed through the air, and ignited, sparking flashes of light. Even worse, once the ground stopped rolling, it might have resettled and partially closed the fissure in the temple. Perhaps this is why the oracle eventually stopped giving prophecies, because the gases were less accessible. And later earthquakes, like ones in 23 CE, 1580, 1769, and 1870, could have filled the crack completely erasing any evidence it ever existed. Which is why the French expedition didn't find anything. But even with all of this evidence, some still dismiss the toxic gas theory. Maybe because the first recorded mention of the full theory wasn't written until the first century BCE, long after the Pythia was at the height of her prestige. It's possible the whole notion of mind-altering gases was a mistake made by some ancient commentator. Or maybe an outright lie. One that was then accepted wholeheartedly by the Romans who passed it on to us today. As for the Pythia's ability to speak Apollo's truth, that could have been an exaggeration too. In total, more than 500 of the oracle statements have survived to today. But they weren't all real. Some were invented by poets or storytellers well after the fact. For instance, the oracle's prophecy that either a Spartan king or Sparta itself must fall has been questioned. The statement about the wooden walls of Athens is also dubious. And the story of Alexander the Great forcing the Pythia to give him a prophecy is almost certainly a later invention. There's no evidence Alexander ever visited the oracle at Delphi. It seems whenever something important happened, the Greeks might have made up some tale involving the oracle. It made for good drama and helped illustrate lessons about fate or testing the gods. Take the story about King Croesus, for instance. Like we discussed last time, when the king asked if he should invade the Persian Empire, the oracle replied that he would destroy a great empire. Taking that as divine confirmation, he carried out the invasion, 
and ruined his own kingdom in the process. It makes for a good story about hubris. Croesus wanted a guarantee that his campaign would succeed. Instead, he misinterpreted the Pythia's words and doomed himself. But it was likely just that, a story. However, that doesn't mean every record of the Pythia is fiction. We know several of her prophecies are genuine. In these cases, it seems she simply gave advice. In his book, Delphi, A History of the Center of the Ancient World, historian Michael Scott suggested the oracle answered questions with responses that were just a bit confusing. Then the visitor would take time to mull over her pronouncement and in the process, work out the answer for themselves. If the story about Athens and the wooden walls is true, it's possible the Pythia never intended to steer the city-state toward a naval battle. But they may have reached that conclusion because deep down, they knew they had a better shot of winning the war at sea. Or maybe we're just overthinking the meaning of a few stray sentences, just like the Oracle's patrons did. It seems unlikely we'll ever have a conclusive answer to the secrets of the Oracle at Delphi. But given the Pythia's legendary love of cryptic prophecies, that may be exactly how she'd want it. Thanks again for tuning in to Unexplained Mysteries. We will be back next Tuesday with a new episode. You can find all episodes of Unexplained Mysteries and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. See you next time. And remember, never take we don't know for an answer. Unexplained Mysteries is a Spotify original from ParCast, executive produced by Max Cutler. Our head of programming is Julian Boireau. Our supervising sound designer is Russell Nash, with Nick Johnson as our head of production and quality control by Lisa Marie Gallegos. Ali Wicker is our supervising editor, and Derek Jennings is our writing lead. This episode of Unexplained Mysteries was written by Devin Hughes, edited by Angela Jorgensen and Alex Garland, fact-checked by Kevin Johnson, researched by Bradley Klein, recorded by Alex Button, Produced by Bruce Kotovich and sound designed by Michael Motion. Our hosts are Molly Brandenburg and me, Richard Rossner. Mm-hmm.